suicidal tendencies. If you've ever been tempted to commit suicide, or if you know someone who has been, you need to be here Wednesday night. The temptation to commit suicide is a revolving thing. It, it will go and come and go and come. And it does that in an effort to eventually get you to do it and go through with it. And so Wednesday night, we'll talk about that. Last Wednesday, we talked about how to cope with rejection. And last Sunday morning, I talked to you about how to cope with unbelief. If you were not here last Sunday morning, it would be to your advantage to take the CD from last Sunday that we give free or to go to SoundCloud, TuneIn, iHeart, or iTunes on your smartphone. Search for my name, Bishop Sherman Young, and Word Break, and you can listen to it on your phone. This morning, I'm going to talk to you about how to cope with being unloved. And I want to do that from John 21 and 17, but as a background, I'm going to read, first of all, 1 Chronicles 4 and verse 9. This series addresses how to cope with life's everyday problems. Unbelief, last Sunday. Rejection, last Wednesday. Suicidal tendencies, this Wednesday. Today, how to cope with being unloved. In using 1 Chronicles uh, chapter 4, I want to read a familiar verse or so that would help you understand something about how children struggle with this and young people struggle with being unloved. It says, Jabez was more honorable than his brothers because his mother had named him Jabez, saying, I gave birth to you in pain. Jabez cried out to the God of Israel, Oh, that you would bless me and enlarge my territory. Let your hand be with me and keep me from harm so that I will be free from pain. And God granted his request. Now you will notice his mother named him Pain. That was his name, the word Jabez in the language of his mother and of this young man, was pain. And so his prayer to God was that you would bless me and enlarge my territory. Let your hand be with me and keep me from harm so that I, listen to this, will be free from pain. Now, his name is pain. Therefore, he is being plagued by pain. Pain is in his life every day. Every time you call his name, you call him pain. He's hurting. He was named after hurt. His mother so regretted him being born. Is there anyone here whose mother regret that you were born? Have you given birth to any child and wish you'd never done that? That's what the story of Jabez is about. And the Bible said, and God granted his request. Now, what I've provided for you is John 17, 21. To put this scripture with the other. And this is when Jesus faced Peter after Peter had failed Jesus. Some of you will remember that Peter had told Jesus in the upper room the night they instituted what we will celebrate here in a few minutes, the Lord's Supper. Jesus told Peter, or Peter told Jesus, I will never run out on you. I will never abandon you. I am with you no matter what happens in your life. You can count on me. And within two or three hours, the Bible teaches that Peter had ran off and left Jesus to face his enemies alone and did not come back and joined another group of people who hated Jesus 
and three times said to those people, I don't even know him. So when they see each other again, first time, a few weeks later, Peter's a little nervous because he knows that he has not demonstrated love. And so the Bible says in verse 21, and this is what you have before you that I've given you. The third time Jesus said to him, or Peter, Jesus said to Peter, Simon, which is also Peter's name. He has the name Simon Peter. Simon, son of John, do you love me? And Peter was hurt because Jesus asked him the third time, do you love me? He said, Lord, you know all things. You, you know that I love you. And Jesus said, feed my sheep. I want to talk to you about how to cope with being unloved. We could also call that how to cope with the feeling of being unloved. Because many people who think that they are unloved are not. But when you feel unloved, you might as well be unloved. Now, we start with what is love. And that's important for us to know. When we read the Bible, particularly the New Testament, we run into several words for love. When I was a younger preacher, I sat down one morning and I found nine Greek words in the New Testament for love. Three of them are the more popular words that we'll talk about right now. And those who understand the New Testament know the Bible was not originally written in English. The Old Testament was written in Hebrew. The New Testament was written in Greek. What we have in English is a translation. Now, the English language is not as advanced as the Grecian language. For example, in English, we use synonyms. So you can have one word that has different meanings. Along with that, in English, we will spell a word the same way, but it can have more than one meaning. For example, in English, the word R-E-A-D spells read, but the same word R-E-A-D spells read. It depends on the context. You have to read the sentence and or the paragraph to figure out whether you should pronounce that word read or read. And then R-E-D spells red. So you know just from that alone, the English language has a lot of problems. And those problems are also reflected in our use of words that you've got the same word, but it means something different when you use it depending on what you're talking about. If I say or if you say to your spouse, I love you. You don't mean the same thing as you mean when you say, I love my new car. If you say, I love going to church, you don't mean the same type of love when you embrace your baby daughter or son and say, you know I love you. Same word, but totally different meanings. You know, we live in a time where a lot of people love animals and don't love people. Truth is, you're supposed to appreciate things, and you're supposed to appreciate animals, but you're supposed to love people. But yet, some people feel more passion when they say to their dog, I love you, than when they say to their own sister or brother. So there, there's different types of love. Because a person looks at you and says, I love you, it doesn't mean that that they're saying what you think you heard. How did, I, how did that come out just now? A lot of us have been fooled by people that actually did love us. They didn't just love us the way that we wanted them to love us. And we invested our love, our time, our emotions, and our resources into a relationship where the person did not mean the same thing when they said, I love you. As you said when you spoke to them and said, I love you. What is love? Well, there are three Greek words in the New Testament predominantly that we use. One is agape. Would the church say agape? 
Now, agape is the love of God. It is divine love. It is agape in John 3.16 when we talk about God's love for us. You remember that? Let's say it together. For God, come on, so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son. The love of God is agape. It is a fatherly love. It is a protective love. It means that God protects us. It means that God provides for us. And it means that God pardons us. And you will notice God so loved the world. Meaning that God loves everybody whether they love him back or not. In other words, agape is a one-way kind of love. It doesn't rest upon the idea that it has to be reciprocated. God loves you. You're a Christian believer. But I'm here to tell you, God also loves the atheists. He loves the Muslims. He loves the people who are agnostic that say, well, there may be a God, but he's a supreme being, and he's certainly not this kind of God they talk about at the church. But God still loves them. God loves the person who prayed when they first got up this morning. But God also loves the person who cursed him when they first got up this morning. The love of God, agape, is a love that includes everybody. And when we say God so loved the world, we're not talking about the earth. We're talking about those who live on the earth. God so loved the world. So much does God love the world that even though people say they don't believe he exists, he still feeds them. He still clothes them. He still shelters them. He still gives them jobs. He still helps them, although they don't love him back. Now, that's God's kind of love. God's love loves you when you don't know how to love him back. But there's a second kind of love called filio. Can you say filio? Now, filio is human love or brotherly love. That's the kind of love that we have between one another as brothers and sisters in the same family as brothers and sisters in Christ, as people in the neighborhood, next door neighbors. This is the kind of love that you have for other folk that has really uh, a kind of brotherly thing attached to it. We use the word filio in America for a couple of things. It's the name of one of our cities in America, Philadelphia. Philos, Delphos, and that's why Philadelphia is called the city of brotherly love. Because filio, Philadelphia, means that they are a loving city. Uh, philanthropy, where you talk about a person that gives to charity or they give to good causes or they give to community development. What we're doing in no presence, no problems, is what you do as a part of philanthropy. We will bless people that we don't even know because we love people. I wish I had a witness. Because we love people. We love children. We don't have to know their names. We just want them to have a good time this season. That's filio. That's the kind of love that we've got between friends. We, we're, fr we're not kin, but we're friends. And because we're friends, I can say, I love you. And you can look back and say, I love you. It's a feeling of, of affection, but it's not divine. Anybody can practice filio. But the third type is eros. Now, you will remember eros is the root word of words like erotic, erotica, which has to do with sex, has to do with men and women having sex, intimacy. That's the kind of love that is. So you've got that type of love where it is between people who are dating or people who are engaged or people who are married. And so there is eros. Now, sometimes you tell a person, I love you, and you mean eros. And they look back at you and said, I love you, but they mean filio. I don't have a witness here. See, they're loving you as a friend. And sometimes the woman will tell you, well, you know, no, I ain't into you like that. You know, we can just be friends. But the dude will say to her, now, now, honey, you know I love you. But they're talking two different subjects. Because eros is self-gratifying love. 
You see, agape is protecting love. Brotherly love or filio is the kind of love that we have to mutually support one another. But eros is all self-gratification. It's not about giving, it's about receiving. I wish I had a witness. It's got a self-centeredness to it. Uh, and it is usually short-lived. Sometimes eros doesn't last past the honeymoon. Sometimes it'll go 10 years. Sometimes 20 years. Sometimes 40 years. Sometimes 50 years. But at some point, it comes to an end. I have in my possession records of the marriage between the people who raised me as a foster child. They were married in February of 1915, 101 years ago. And they stayed in a marital relationship for 75 years. Boy, don't find that much. But eros is not always what people would like for it to be. And too many people try to build their life around eros. When you talk about eros, you're talking about where people are, are, are turned on for one another. Where people have, there's an attraction. Now that eros can become so strong that they build a family together in marriage. And that they stay together until death, physical death, does separate them. But in a lot of cases, too many folk try to build their whole life around eros. As a matter of fact, as humans, we mistakenly measure success in life by eros and filio more than agape. You see, a lot of folk that I know base whether they're happy or not on whether they got any eros going on or any filio going on. Have you ever noticed on Facebook the folk who moan and groan because they ain't got no boo in their life? Have you ever seen how people can tear up their whole life over and over again for the sake of eros? That there are some folk that think they're not successful because they don't have a date. Or they don't have anybody to complete them. I wish I had a little more help coming back. There are some people that make the mistake of thinking that because they don't have anybody special in their life at that point in time that they're missing something that they ought to have. And they base their whole success or failure in life on who they're with. And sometimes when they can't get with who they want to get with, they just get with who they can get with. If you can't love the one you want, Oh, you're right there. And the truth of the matter is that that's in a lot of cases how relationships get started and babies get produced and how even people join themselves in same-sex relationships because the void of eros is so strong they just reach out and grab whatever is grabbable. Oh, I'll get a witness here in a minute. And on Facebook, they moan and groan. I don't have a witness here. They talk over and over again. And when they, they are so desperate to impress everybody that they got somebody, when they get down to that category where you have to say whether you are single or in a relationship, they put down, it's complicated. You know why it's complicated? Because they want to at least make you think that there is somebody, but they ain't quite got it worked out yet. I wish I had a witness. Our desperation for friendship has gotten so bad that we call the folk that we connect with online friends. I was on Facebook one day, and this person had 5,000 friends. They had so many friends until Facebook told them, you can't have no more friends. Now, out of 5,000 folk that they identified as friends, how many do you really think they're friends with? But that's how obsessed we are with filio. I want to be popular. 
I want everybody to know that I'm well connected. Here's a person on Facebook with 300 friends. Poor soul. They ain't got nobody. Here's somebody else with, with 3,750 friends. They call that impressive. Because we make the mistake of measuring our success in life by how much filio we have or how much eros we have. It never dawns on us that God loves us all the time. It never dawns on us that God's love is unconditional, where both filio and eros have some conditions attached to them. Oh, come on now. Pray with me now. You said we're friends, but now I'm trying to find the friendship because I've been doing a whole lot for you. I don't see you doing much for me. Matter of fact, I have done everything I could to help you. I give you as my friend the shirt off my back. And I asked you for $5 one time and you rolled your eyes. I don't have a witness here. We measure friendship by reciprocation. Not to mention Eros. You got to prove Eros all the time. <laughs> Do you love me? I told you this morning. I love Well, tell me again. Do you love me? I ate those eggs you cooked, didn't I? I just want to hear you say it. See, they don't realize that the eggs that they made for you was nasty. And you had to choke them down without criticism. I don't have a witness here. But when you said, I ate your cooking, that's supposed to mean I love you. All other love other than God's love has reciprocation attached. And I regret that there are too many people in this room that for whatever their reason, they have gotten to the point in life that they're feeling unloved. When God's love is there all the time. When God's love is never failing. When God's love is unconditional. Do you know that your friends will cut out on you if you embarrass them? I don't have a witness here. They used to call you a friend till you got in trouble. Now you send them a text message and they won't even respond. Oh, they used to be your friend as long as they were proud of you. But now that people know something about your weakness or about your mistakes or your errors, now you can't find a good friend. But God, somebody said, but God. You see, God is the kind of God that knows me when I'm right and he knows me when I'm wrong. He is never embarrassed, never ashamed of me. He is never dismissing me. He never turns his back on me. He never walks away from me. He always recommends me because God is love. So that's not the love I'm preaching about. I'm preaching about this other kinds of love. Because feelings of being unloved brings on several things. First of all, frustration. Can you say frustration? When people feel unloved, they're frustrated. They live in frustration. It's almost as if they can't make anything work right. Things start off pretty good, but they always end up pretty bad. Takes off like a jet, stops on a dime. Frustration. But then people who feel unloved are full of self-pity. Self-pity. They throw pity parties for themselves. If you go out to lunch with them, all they talk about is themselves. And all they talk about is how bad their life is. And all they talk about is how negative things are in their life. People who feel unloved, thirdly, suffer with loneliness. Can you say loneliness? Because no matter what you achieve in life, if you feel unloved, and you think you have nobody to share that with. Or you don't have anybody to congratulate you. Or nobody to praise you. Then loneliness sets in. When loneliness comes in, you find yourself sitting in rooms looking at the four walls. You'll get up in the middle of the night and sit in a dark room. And you'll lament and mourn about how lonely you are. You'll be out. In public, and you'll see a couple holding hands and think about you have no hand to hold in yours. 
You'll sit in a restaurant during lunchtime, and you'll look across the way, and you'll see friends, four friends at the table conversing with one another, or the new word is conversating with one another. And you'll sit there and remember you have nobody to talk to. You go to work, and they're grouped up. You call it office politics. You, you ain't got nobody to talk to in the break room. But it feels like everybody's talking about you. Loneliness. The next thing is indifference. Would you say indifference? Have you ever wondered why that person on the job is so mean every morning? They don't have anybody. Or they think they don't have anybody. Or it may very well be the symptom of being unloved. I mean, you meet them at work, you don't know whether to smile or run. They're indifferent. They always got an attitude, no matter what. No matter what. You say good morning, they grunt. I wish I had a witness. And then you try to at least build some type of working relationship with them, but they're off and on. One day their water is ice cold, the other is scalding hot. They're indifferent, hard to get along with. Then, next of all, resentment. Can you say resentment? When you feel unloved, you resent success in other people. You resent anything being spoken around you good about other people. You find all the negative things in everybody else to magnify. You're just filled with resentment. You hate the fact that the other co-workers on the job want to celebrate so-and-so's birthday and ask you to bring one cupcake. And your response was, ain't nobody never brought me no cupcake. When people feel unloved, not only frustration, self-pity, loneliness, indifference, resentment, but then there's jealousy. You ever wonder why people are so jealous? Because they feel unloved in here. And in a lot of cases, their response to everything is with jealousy. That's why they don't want the birthday celebration for others. That's why they don't want to congratulate you, even though everybody knows that you've done a good job and you won the Employee of the Month Award. But they'll act like it didn't happen because of jealousy. And jealousy is not an emotion. It's a combination of emotions. There's fear in jealousy. I wish I had a witness. There's anger in jealousy, and there is sadness in jealousy. And when you take all three of those things, put a little milk in it, and stir it up, it comes out jealousy. When you're, when you're a jealous person, you're afraid. You're always afraid. You're afraid of trusting anybody. You're afraid that whoever you trust is going to break your heart. You're afraid that if you show any kind of trust or any kind of appreciation that they're going to throw it back in your face. You live in fear. Not only that, but you live in sadness when you're jealous. Deep down on the inside, it's hard for you to really throw yourself 100% into happiness, into a celebration. Oh, you can get 80, 90% in there, but you can't get all of you in it. Because you really think it should have been you that everybody's celebrating. It ought to be you that they're patting on the back. It ought to be you that got the bonus on the job. It ought to be you that's got a new car rather than the person down the road. You know why people borrow money from you and don't pay you back? Because they were jealous of you to begin with. See, they hated the fact that they needed $100 and didn't have it. But you did have it. And not only did you have it, you had enough left over to loan them the hundred. So they will take your hundred and then walk off and then the next time they see you, act like they didn't see you. I wish I had a witness. I mean, they'll walk all the way around you. They'll go down the other hallway to keep from going up the hallway you might be going to, to the water fountain. I don't have a witness here. But the truth is, there's something on the inside of them that bothered them. It was scratching them when you gave them that money. Why is it that you had it and they didn't have it? And why did they have to come to you? And why did you say yes? It would have probably been better if you'd looked at them and said, girl, I ain't got no money like that. 
You said, but they came up to me and said, I know you got it. Don't act like you got it. So, girl, I ain't got no money like that. Now, that's not saying you don't have the money. That's saying that your money is set aside for a certain purpose. I wish I had a witness. Because after all, if you're loaning me your rent money, you didn't have it to begin with. Don't loan me your rent money and then look at me and say, now, I got to have it back next Friday. I mean, the truth is, if I had money flowing out of me like that, I wouldn't have ever needed to come to you to get the $100 to begin with. Jealousy. And then there's fear. Can you say fear? Yes. Oh, an unloved person lives in fear. They live in fear. And by, and by me saying living in fear, not just in relationships, but their whole life. And so oftentimes when, you look, when they look around, they're not accumulating anything. Their life is not moving forward because they're so busy looking around and observing until they forget to take care of the things they need to take care of. Now, how do you cope with feeling unloved? I'm glad you asked the question. First of all, you need to be fully convinced of God's agape for you. You see, no matter what you may be lacking in life, you should never start counting on what you don't have. You always start counting on what you do have. It's crazy for me to start counting something that I ain't got. It is better for me to count what I do have and then compare what I do have with what I don't have. Are you understanding me? See, you, you, when, when I ask you about life, you start counting on, well, me and my mama don't get along. Well, me and my daddy don't get along. Well, I ain't got no husband. Well, I ain't got no wife. Well, I ain't got no girlfriend. Well, I ain't got no boyfriend. You see, you start with nothing. And whenever you start with nothing and keep on counting nothings, after you keep counting, you end up with nothing. Let's talk about what I do have. I have God's agape. My mother might have been mean to me. My daddy might have whipped me too much. My granddaddy might have put his hands on places on my body he never should have touched. My grandmama might have looked the other way, but I still got the love of God. Oh, I don't have a witness around here. The Bible said when my mother and my father forsake me, then the Lord shall take me up. And the truth is there's not many in this room that grew up in a perfect situation. Some of us got cussed out by our parents for no reason. I wish I had a witness. Your mama was high and your daddy was drunk. But you still got the love of God. I wish I had a witness here. See, the truth is we watch a little too much TV. And TV often paints the picture that's just not real. You got all these fantasy homes on TV. Remember the old Cosby show? And you got a wealthy father and a wealthy mother and they got everything they could ever ask for or have and, and they got the best clothes and they're looking good driving the best cars. That looks good on TV, but how many know most of the time that ain't real life? And baby, you got to face the fact the life you have is the life that was dealt to you at the card table. Every time I play spades, I wish I had a witness. They always deal out a hand I don't like. I think I deal myself a better hand than they deal me. But I got to tell you, sometimes I deal myself a bad hand. I picked up the cards and looked at them and said, who dealt this? And baby, every one of us was dealt a hand that we want to throw back. Oh, I don't have a witness around here. I know you hear me preaching about my growing up, my home life. I know because I use myself as an illustration. But there's a whole lot in my past I wish I could have changed. And that's true for just about. I'm not talking to you. I'm talking to your neighbor. That's true for just about everybody in this room. You came to the right place here. Because this is not the crowd born with a silver spoon in his mouth. This ain't the crowd that was born in the expensive part of town. This is not the crowd that came home from the hospital as a newborn baby riding in a brand new Cadillac. This is not the crowd that got a brand new BMW when we turned 16 years old. This ain't the crowd. I wish I had a witness. 
that was given diamonds and jewelry for our sweet 16 party. You in the right place. This is the crowd that had to ride hand-me-down bicycles sometimes. Hand-me-down clothes. This is the crowd that our mothers had to work so much we hardly did even get to see her. She'd come in sometime late at night, leave early in the morning. This is the crowd where some of us don't even know who our daddy really was. It was just one man nice to us. We called him daddy. Mama said that was daddy. And so that's good enough. Oh, I don't have a witness around this church. Listen, you're in a group of overcomers. But that's the kind of church you ought to want to be in. You ought to want to be in a church where there's some overcomers sitting next to you. I don't want to sit in a church where everybody's perfect but me. And we are all fully convinced God loves us. Mama may not have known how, did the best she could. Amen. Daddy did the best he could. Amen. Big Mama, Madea, they did the best they could. Amen. But God, he doesn't do the best he can. He is the best. And you need to be fully convinced of that. Because being convinced of God's love can take you through any barrier. If you ain't got a mother, father, you ain't got a husband, if you ain't got a wife, if you ain't got nobody cheering you on, when you are 100% convinced that you're on God's team. Secondly, Satan manipulates you when you're hurting from little filio and eros, causing you to deny agape. You know why some people deny church? Why some people wouldn't, wouldn't come here to pray today? Because they ain't got no boo in their life. And they woke up sad this morning. They wanted to go to that party last night. But they ain't have nobody to go with them. Then some of them went with the wrong boo. Around 1 o'clock this morning, the wrong boo got wronger. They cussed him out. And when they woke up this morning, they said, no, I'm not going to church. I'm not living right. Filio comes and goes. Eros comes and goes. Don't let that ever, listen to me, don't let your personal life ever interfere with your prayer life. I need a witness up in here now. Don't ever let somebody who let you down make you think that God doesn't love you. You got to have your own values and you need to check on yourself. And you need to forgive whoever hurt you. Now, this is the hardest point of all. I preached all of that to get down to this point and come to the table. You see, what's up with us is we pile up so many disappointments until it makes a wall that we cannot climb over. I hate this one. I hate that one. I hate that one. I hate what that one did to me. And that, and that, and that, and that, and that. And that, and that. And when we walk through the door, we got all of that mountain of hate and resentment walking behind us. It's time to forgive. I don't mean no harm. I'm just telling you straight up. It's time to forgive your ex. Because it's been five years. I mean, I mean how, how much longer are you going to drag that old bag around with that chain on it. You said, but he didn't, she didn't ask me to forgive her. You're right. I'm on your side. She should ask, and she didn't. But here's what you got to determine. Is not forgiving them having an impact on my life? If it is, it ain't worth it.
I'd rather let it go, write that off, let them keep that old money. Oh, I'm going to get a witness before I get out of here today. Forgiveness is not for the enemy's benefit. It's for my benefit. Because if I'm waking up at 6 o'clock in the morning after just having a dream at 545 about what they did to me five years ago, that's too much. When I wake up in the morning, I want to wake up with the Lord on my mind. I want to wake up with prayer on my mind. When I wake up in the morning, I want to reach, get my Bible and read a couple of verses of scripture. I don't want to get up thinking about you. You ain't worth that much. Let it go. Tell your neighbor, let it go. Now I'm through, but I got to tell you how Jesus teaches us to minister to others that feel unloved. Because you do know we are all supposed to be ministers of love. Rewind it. You do know that we are all supposed to be ministers of love. Rewind it. You do know that we are all supposed to be ministers of love. You ain't know that? Why do you think you're on that job with that mean so-and-so? Why did God put you on that job? So you could minister love to them because they're unloved. They come in huffing and puffing, blowing every morning. Why? You say, Reverend, that's what I want to know. Why? Because God sent you there to administer his love to them. Check it out. Who is the head of the church? Jesus. Who is the body of Christ? Huh? We are, everybody. Say we are. Then how is God going to show his love to them if he doesn't use you? He don't live here. He's not working where you work. The reason why he gave you that job is because that mean cuss is working down line from you. I'm not getting enough help here to preach this. I think we're going to be here till 5 o'clock. See, that's what happened with Jesus and Peter. Peter said to Jesus in the upper room when he instituted the Lord's Supper, Jesus said, you know, I'm going to go through a hardship. I'm going to be betrayed. I'm going to be uh, arrested. I'm going to be crucified. You know what Peter said? I'll go with you. Ain't going to happen to you without me. If they dare try that on you, they're going to have to deal with me too. About an hour later, two hours later, when they came to arrest Jesus, Peter took off running. And do you know he didn't show up? At the crucifixion? And do you know the night that he took off running, which is the night before the crucifixion, do you know that they questioned him three times? Didn't we see you with Jesus? Aren't you one of his followers? Do you know? He said, not me. I don't know him. Well, after the crucifixion and the resurrection, this is the first time Jesus and Peter meet face to face. Have you ever had to face somebody that you messed up? It don't feel good, does it? Oh, I know you walk up in there with your bad self acting like it don't bother you. It does. And Peter's all kind of nervous and upset. This is after the resurrection. Peter and the disciples are gone fishing. And they're out there all night and couldn't get a bite. Because when you deny the Lord, you can't get blessed. When you say you don't know him, you can't get blessed. And Peter fished all night and caught nothing. And that morning, as the sun was coming up, there was a dude standing over, way over there on the bank, waving. Hey! Hey! Good morning! Have you? Are they biting this morning? Now, you know, that's not what the Bible said. The Bible said that Jesus said, 
children have ye any meat? Now, you know we don't talk like that. We don't even know. I mean, that's not our language at all, is it? Here's what we say. Have you caught anything? You know what they said, Deacon Jackson? They said, we hadn't caught anything. Now, here's what he said. Throw your net on the right side of the boat. You'll catch more than you can handle. Now, what you don't realize is that's kind of like a little signal right there. When Peter first met Jesus, that's what happened. In Luke chapter 5, Jesus borrowed Peter's boat to preach from the people standing on the shore. And, and Peter loaned the Lord his boat. And in exchange for letting him use the boat, Jesus told Peter that day, drop your net on that side right there for a drought, a catch of fish. The Bible said they pulled up so many fish, the net broke. They didn't have room in the boat for the fish they caught. Three and a half years later, here's Jesus. Peter is on that boat with ten other disciples. Jesus is standing over here on the bank, but they don't know it's him. Let your net on the right side. You'll get a catch. They don't even know who that dude is. But apparently he must know something because they ain't caught nothing. So on a hunch, they throw it over on the right side. The Bible said they caught 153 fish. They counted them. I said they caught 153 fish. When they counted 153 fish, Peter said to the boys, hold on, hold on, hold on, uh-uh, uh-uh, uh that's Jesus. They say, you sure? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Only he could tell us where the fish are because, you know, I mean, they didn't have x-ray glasses back then to look down through the, through the boat, you understand? And they didn't, they didn't have this, this, this technology. They said, no, that's the one that created the fish. Guess what Peter did? Stripped and jumped in the water naked and started swimming to Jesus. Boy, that's the way a guilty Negro always is. They always overcompensate. You ever had anybody grinning around you like they ain't done nothing wrong? He, he, he. Yeah, I mean, they cheesing so hard. You want to look at them and say, honey, you ain't got to go through all that. I know what you've done to me. Swimming naked. Just going to the show, going to the show. Left. He could have stayed in the boat. The boat is going to the shore. No, he got to get some points. He swim to the shore. He get to the shore. You guess, guess the first thing Jesus said to him? He said, Jesus. Jesus looked at him and said, where the fish? See, when the Lord bless you, you don't never come to him empty handed. Oh, no. Oh, no. Uh-uh. Uh-uh. You swimming your faithful self right on up the creek. Ain't got nothing in your hand. Put nothing in the envelope. I don't have a witness here. God gave you a job. You ain't paid him not one time. You're just swimming. Well, he gets to the shore. He said, where the fish? And then Peter looked around Jesus, and guess what he saw? Jesus had fish frying in the skillet and bread cooking breakfast. Here's what I love about the Lord. He let Peter catch fish, but he didn't want his fish. He already had his own fish. He just wanted to see if Peter was faithful enough to bring the fish that he caught. The Lord don't want what you got. He already got everything. Now, I got to cut this off, but listen, if you're going to minister love to people, now here's what happened. They had a good breakfast. Everybody said they ate well. They're sitting on the shore. You know how it is after a good meal, sitting back, feeling good, especially when the Lord cooked it. Hallelujah, the Lord cooked fish and bread. I bet they had a few grits around there. Had a little butter in it. The Bible doesn't say that, but my imagination working with me here. Maybe that fish was salmon croquette. 
good old fried catfish. And you know how the Lord is about multiplying. It was more than enough. So they're sitting around chilling, you know. And James and John and Thomas and Bartholomew and Judas, non-Iscariot, not the Iscariot, but the other one. And they're they sitting around. But Jesus and Peter, they're hanging out on this side of the fire. And then they kind of, you know, just chit-chatting, how, you know, how's things going, how your mother-in-law, how you, you know, Peter was married, he had a mother-in-law that Jesus healed one time. How your mama-in-law doing? Mm -hmm. How your wife doing? Mm -hmm. He said, hey, uh, Peter, I, yes, do you love me? Now, how do you minister love to people? First of all, he blessed them with fish. Say he blessed them with fish. See, when you know you need to break somebody's spirit of hatred in your life, in your family, on your job, don't go in there criticizing their attitude. First thing you got to do is be a blessing to them. It's Christmas time right now. Why don't you get them a Christmas present? Hmm? On their birthday, why don't you get them something? For, just get them a card. Say, so, you know, I was just thinking about you. Now, when I say get them a present, honey, I ain't talking about go get them no diamond now. Just go down to the drugstore, get them a little red lobster, $25 little card for lunch, you know. I was just thinking about, well, we, we, I, we, well, I know we drew names, but I didn't know you drew my name. I didn't draw your name. <laughs> Hallelujah. Just working the love of God. He blessed him with fish. I say he blessed him with fish. I say he blessed him with what? Stop giving folk what they don't want. You're going to give me a present. Give me what I want. Don't give me what you want me to have. And then wonder why I don't like it. I don't like that. That's why you ask grown folk what do they want for their birthday. You know, you want to you surprise a five-year-old. A 35-year-old, you need to find out what they want. I just helped somebody right there. I don't know who it was. I'm through. But then not only did he bless him with fish, he blessed him with his, with his cooking. What does that mean? That means he made a sacrifice for what he did. The dude didn't deserve it. If it was anybody in the Bible that did not deserve to be blessed, it was Peter. But the Lord blessed him. Number three, he sat down with him. Do you know how powerful it is to sit down with somebody over a meal? I know you do. Because you'll leave here and go to a restaurant today, walk in and see a bunch of tables with only one person at the table. Why don't you just go there and sit down with them? You say, I don't know them. Yeah, because we only sit down together at meals when we have a relationship. So sitting down at the meal suggests a relationship. Rather than go in that break room, see that one in there, and get up your attitude because you know they got one. Why don't you get you a Coca-Cola and sit down there with them? And just talk about life. Don't talk about the job. Don't talk about the supervisor because everybody talks about the supervisor. And if you're the supervisor, you know what I'm talking about. You ain't got a friend nowhere on the job. Everybody talks about the supervisor. Oh, sit down there and tell them about your children. Tell them about your tell them about your your good fortunes in life. Don't tell them about you know the divorce you went through and how awful it was. Don't show them the scar from your surgery. He sat down with him, and here's the last thing. He gave him another chance. He said, "Peter, do you love me more than these?" He said, "You know I love you." He said, feed my sheep. No, you wouldn't have been telling nobody to stab you in the back, left you to fight alone, went off and told the whole community they didn't know you, didn't want to be nowhere around you, and if they did know you, let God strike me dead right now. Because that's what Peter said when he said he cursed. It means he said, let a curse be on me. Let death hit me right now if I know that man. But Jesus said, I got a job for you. 
he gave him another chance. Now, I'm through with my little sermon, and we're getting ready to stand up. But let me let, 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 let me let you in on something. You know when you read this, it's three times, right? He said, do you love me more than these? He said, yeah, Lord, you know I love you. He said, feed my sheep. Did Peter, do you love me more than these? That's the second time. He said, yeah, Lord, you know I love you. He said, feed my lamb. Peter, do you love me more than these? Yeah, Lord, you know all things you know I love you. Why are you going back and forth? Arguing? They're not arguing. Uh-uh. They got to get on the same page. Remember I told you love had three different words? They ain't using the same word. Here's the way that really reads. Peter, do you agape me more than these? Which means would you protect me if my back was against the wall? You know what Peter said? Uh-uh. I filio you. Mean I love you as a friend. So Jesus come back second time. He said, Peter, do you agape me more than these? You know what Peter said? Mm -mm. He said, I filio you. See, Peter had more sense than to say he loved him at that level when he know he'd let him down. Some folk need to learn that lesson. Don't be acting like you all of that when you know you ain't all that, like you love me and you know you don't love me. Don't be, don't be, listen, don't be fooling folk. Tell them the truth. Scared you're going to get put out to breakfast. I'm through. The third time, you know what Jesus said? Now, this may interest you. Peter didn't change. Jesus changed. Peter, Jesus said to Peter, okay, Simon, son of Jonah, do you fill your me? more than these. He said, Lord, now you know all things. <laughs> I feel you. He said, feed my, feed my sheep. What is that about? What is that about? Oh, put your seatbelt on. I'm getting ready to hit you with a pretty hard blow. God loves you so much, sometimes he meets you where you are. So he can get you to where he wants you to be. See, you, you may not know but one verse in the Bible. Guess what? God will work with you on that one verse. The only prayer you may know is the prayer your mama taught you how to pray. But God will meet you in your prayer room on that one prayer. You may not know much about faith, hope. You may not know much about love. But whatever you know, if you give God a chance today, he'll meet you right where you are. You may not sing like an angel. You may not preach like Paul. You may not know much about the church. But if you can just say, Jesus. He will meet you in the name of Jesus. If you don't know Genesis from Revelation, can you say Jesus? If you don't know anything about the 12 disciples, can you say Jesus? If you don't know how to believe in your heart and confess with your mouth, can you just say Jesus? Jesus. Can anybody say Jesus? Can the church say Jesus? Who is our Savior? What's his name? Who is our healer? What's his name? Who's our deliverer? What's his name? I'm telling you, in the name of Jesus. In the name of Jesus, be saved, be healed, be set free, be delivered. He'll open doors that no man can close. He'll pick you up, turn you around. Come on, stand up. I've been way too long. I've been way too long. I want you to take your arm. I don't ask you to do this much, but I just want you to put your arm on your neighbor's shoulder. Matter of fact, put it around them. And I want you to say, neighbor, God loves you. He told me to tell you that he loves you. That if, tell them this, if nobody else loves you, you can count on God. Yes! Yeah! Oh! Yes! Come to Jesus.